1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. You know, we want to be uh, what you might call an externally focused church or a missional church. And I think most Christians and most churches, many churches, would say, yeah, we want to be externally focused. We want to be missional. That sounds good. We know the Great Commission. We've heard it read in church. Maybe even it's one of the few verses we have memorized. We know that's what we ought to do. We know that our church, we want to know that our church is doing something about that. So if our church is doing something about that, it makes me feel like I'm doing something about that, right? And that's all a good thing. But oftentimes when, I, oftentimes when I actually talk to Christians, individual Christians, about what kinds of things make a church externally focused, like what does an externally focused church do that we would deem them externally focused? The things that I hear sound eerily similar to whatever they particularly prefer for the church to be doing. The things that suit them, the preferences that they would like, the things that would be convenient for them or comfortable for them or fun for them or whatever. Undoubtedly, they are likely thinking about people like them who they assume might be attracted to the things that they would be attracted to, the same conveniences that are attractive to them. They think, if this is what I would want my church to do, if this is what would keep me and my church, if we were doing this, then, then of course that would be what would get those people who are not in church to come to church, to be at church, right? To be in my church. What we're finding in First Timothy is that strong churches promote and protect gospel truth. Thus, they pursue gospel growth. But the problem is, by that definition of externally focused, by the definition that is often given in reality, external is actually disgruntled churchgoers that don't like their church, that I'd like to come to my church. Too often what is attractive is not the good news of Jesus, but a good product of church. It's not gospel growth that's really being pursued, just numerical growth. 
who among us, when we think about being externally focused, or we think about being missional, stops and thinks to themselves, what does the Bible say an externally focused church does? What do we see in Scripture? What does the church of the New Te- in the New Testament, what do we see them doing that causes them to be externally focused or causes them to be missional? Well, Paul gives Timothy this first supportive structure for a strong church, and that structure is prayer. And the bottom line for our sermon this morning is this, corporate prayer is key to gospel growth. Corporate prayer is key to gospel growth. And understand that when I say gospel growth, I am not meaning just more things. I'm not meaning merely more people. I'm meaning actual growth in the gospel, actual repentance and faith in Christ and in the good news of his kingdom and a pursuit of him. So this morning we're going to look At our passage, we're going to break it up into three sections. Verses 1 and 2 is the command for prayer. Verses 3 and 4 is our reason for prayer. And verses 5 through 7 is the promise for prayer. Then we're going to wrap it up with a couple of quick essentials, if you will, for an externally focused church. All right, our command for prayer we see in verses 1 and 2 of this passage. And considering First, our command to pray, we need to ask ourselves two questions. Two questions. First, we need to ask ourselves, do we pray? Do, we, do I pray? Do we as a church pray? And what do we pray for? What are we, what are we, what are we praying? What, is Paul, what would Paul have the church in Ephesus and Timothy instruct the church to pray for? Well, he says, Paul says, first of all, which I think either could be simply him saying, well, I got to start somewhere. Here's the first thing. Or it could be a statement of priority, but I think because he puts it first, either way, he's intending it for it to be a priority for the church. The first thing, the most important thing, the thing that is that undergirds all the other things that 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 this whole church depends on is that we pray. And he then gives four different words that are used for praying and and I think um, as I've looked in, into the definitions of these words, there's significant overlap between them. And so I'd probably warn us against some sort of like rigid way of trying to differentiate each one from the others. You know, well, now I'm doing the intercession prayer and now I'm doing the, the supplication prayer. And oops, I forgot the prayer prayer. I think Paul's point in using all these words is just to say, look, do all the praying, all the praying. <laughs> all the praying. But I do want to give particular emphasis on something, not because it's necessarily emphasized in the text, but I think it's emphasized throughout the New Testament, wherever we see Paul calling people to pray. What we also see him doing is calling them to thanksgiving in prayer. And I want to emphasize that because I think oftentimes that's an element that I forget in my own prayers. And I think oftentimes that's an element that we forget generally as we go to prayer but it's something that is very important throughout Scripture to take time to not just ask of the Lord. We're invited to ask of the Lord, yes, but to actually thank Him for what He's given us. 
And so we have this call to prayer first off, and what are we praying for? These prayers are for all people, he says. And, and when he says all people throughout this passage, what I want you to understand is he's not meaning um, all people as in every individual person that exists, but he's meaning all people as in all kinds of people. His point here is to prove that the gospel is not just for Jews, those who fit within the endless genealogies we saw in chapter 1, right? But it's for Gentiles as well, and he emphasizes that at the end of our passage where he says, look, I'm, I am appointed to be a teacher to the Gentiles because the gospel is for the Gentiles. It's for all kinds of people. We cannot uh, 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 close in him in who we are actually seeking uh, to, to know the Lord, seeking to bring the gospel to, and thus we can't him in who we're actually praying would know the gospel. Friends, there are people that you may not pray for because you think they'll never know the Lord. They're too far from God. How? Like, just hold up a second on that. You think because you're such a good person that that God would save you and not them? You think that somehow your life, because of how you were raised or how you live or what you do, that somehow it makes you more savable than them? Let me remind you that nothing about your salvation is a product of your effort other than the sin that makes you needing to be saved. You were not any easier to save than anyone else. Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for you just as well as he shed his blood for anyone else he saves. So before we say, as the church in Ephesus did, oh, we're not going to pray for the Gentiles, the gospel's not for them, They're not the people of God. Before we stop praying for our coworker or for our brother or for our cousin or for our neighbor because they're too far from God, let us remember how far from God we actually were without Christ. All right, so the ultimate goal of these prayers for all people is that all people would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We see that in verse 4. Before I jump into what we are praying for specifically, I want, I want to also note one last detail here. What Paul is talking about here is corporate prayer. And I think in our time particularly, uh, in any time, things, one thing gets emphasized over another thing. And things go back and forth. And I think in our time particularly, there is a great emphasis on private prayer as opposed to corporate prayer, but I think in the church over the centuries, uh, it hasn't always been so. And I think when we read Scripture and we read the New Testament, when we see uh, the church uh, in the New Testament, we see Paul talking about prayer. Oftentimes, when he's instructing people, Christians, to pray, he's actually instructing them to pray together. We remember Jesus' words in Matthew 6 where he tells people to go into the secret place, right, and to pray in private where no one sees them because the Pharisees are standing out on the street corner praying for everyone to hear. And we think, ah, we should primarily, we should predominantly pray by ourselves. But I think that's a misapplication because just a few verses later when they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray, he says, our Father. Pray like this, our Father, not my Father, our Father. The assumption is that the believers are praying together. The assumption is that that private room of prayer is where the Christians come together. Not just one Christian, 
that we would come together in prayer corporately. Now, I'm not saying that, no, you don't have to pray by yourself. You know, don't. Please hear me right. Do that. But what I am saying is that there is an incredible power in a church that prays together for the Lord to work in their community. In Acts 2, before the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and thousands come to the Lord, what was the church doing? Were they sitting in a room together, figuring out how they can rent a helicopter to drop, you know, flyers of tongues of fire with candy for the kids and flyers to say, come to the next Sabbath? No. They were praying. They were on their knees, asking for God to work in the lives of the brothers and sisters that they would come to know the Lord. That is the first priority. So what do we pray? I think we should clarify what goal Paul has in mind for our prayers. He says that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Let me repeat that. That we may lead a, quiet, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. First, I want to note that this is not a prayer for mere prosperity. It is true that we are able to live peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives. And when we are able, I should say, to do that, that that would in time lead to prosperity. I think that that is just frankly true. When there's peace, when people are not uh, doing evil as much, it opens the doors for uh, greater prosperity. Think how much, uh, you know, of our economy for instance, would be redirected if we didn't constantly have to staff so many police departments and prisons and IRS and auditors and all the rest, right? Because people were always doing things wrong. However, prosperity is not what Paul has in mind. Because prosperity can be gained and then it can be used in ungodly ways that are neither peaceful nor dignified. So this is not a prayer for promoting our kingdoms. This is a prayer for promoting God's kingdom through us. Second, this is not merely a prayer. Uh, this is not a prayer for mere morality either. I want to be clear on this. I'd certainly rather people be moral than immoral. Yet it is true that some degree of morality in people's lives without faith in Christ is of no eternal value. I want you to hear that again. Some morality in people's lives without faith in Christ is of no eternal value. It is as fleeting as your possessions. It is as fleeting as your bank account. They will not take their moral deeds with them to eternity. It may look moral in some way or for some time, but it is likely not dignified in every way. And it cannot be godly without faith in Christ. You see, the word translated godly 
is to have an awesome respect to God, to be devout and, to lo- and loyal to him, not just in theory, but actually living it out. This is more than mere morality. It's a devotion to the one God and the mediator, Jesus Christ, a devotion that begins in the heart and then moves out and is lived out in our actions. In a word, in a word what he is meaning here is piety. It's a word we don't use very often anymore. And so, This prayer, I think, can be summed up in this. It's a prayer for piety, not prosperity, not morality, but for piety. Piety to God is not possible unless people are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Sometimes when we hear the word godly or we hear the word godliness, we think of being just moral, right? We think, well, that's those people who just try to do it on their own. But when the Bible uses the word godliness, it it does, that's not what it means, cannot have godliness without a devotion to God. Hebrews says that God isn't pleased without faith in Him. That nothing we do pleases Him if we do it outside of faith in Him. So we must believe the gospel. And that, that gospel seed, that gospel root, then actually produces gospel fruit in our lives. I've said it before, you can uh, take an apple tree and you can, or you can take an orange tree and you can take apples off the apple tree and take it over to the orange tree and tape it off and you can maybe fool someone for a while, but eventually people are going to find out apples don't grow on that tree, oranges do. And if the gospel is not at the root of who you are, of, you, can, you can keep doing good things, but eventually it's going to prove out that's not an apple tree, that's not a gospel tree, that's something else. John Owen wrote this. He said, He, God, leads none to heaven but whom He sanctifies on earth. When, the, when you believe in Christ, when God does that work of repentance and faith in your life, that will then produce a thing. It will produce lives of godliness. And so, what are our reasons for prayer? In verses 3 and 4, we find a couple of different reasons. Why pray? Well, first, we, we pray because pious lives are good and pleasing to God. Pray for people to have pious lives because they're good and pleasing to God. And friends, we ought to consider good and pleasing what God considers good and pleasing. I think sometimes we think, we stop short of that. We think, well, I ought to believe what's true. Uh, whatever God says is true, I ought to believe it's true. Well, that's good and well, but we also ought to believe, or we also ought to find good and pleasing what God considers good and pleasing. Our affections should be transformed to the affections of God. There are times when I think, okay, that's true. I know it's true. I know that's what God's Word says. I just don't like it. And God goes, thank you, Cody, but that's not enough yet. I'm not done. I want to transform your heart too. I'm not satisfied with just mental assent. I want your heart to actually love the things that I love. Second, pious lives produce gospel fruit. It's it's good because God is Savior, it says, right? 
This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Paul emphasizes the fact that God desires people to be saved. The seed of faith in Christ produces the fruit of pious and godly lives, and that fruit contains the seed for faith in Christ that when planted in good soil produces more gospel fruit, right? This is pleasing to God. So we have to ask ourselves, what is good and pleasing to God in our society? What is good and pleasing to God in our city? Pluralism or piety? What does God think? What do we find good and pleasing? What do we consider good and pleasing when we go to our to pray? Or as our pastor speaks about governing officials when we go to the polls, what do we find good and pleasing? So with that, let's consider this second part of why we pray. We pray for governing authorities. The civil authorities have a particular effect on our lives. And we ought to pray that they would lead in such a way that would promote two general ends. First, that which is conducive to peaceful lives. We ought to pray that the way in which our civil magistrates, our civil authorities, our, our mayor, our city council, our, our state legislature, our governor, our, our president, all of them, the way, way that they lead would be conducive to peaceful lives. That there, there can't be quiet and peaceful lives where there's wickedness and immorality running rampant. So we ought to pray that they would restrain what is truly evil and violent and promote what's good, which is their God-ordained job. Now, I know that there may be some who would say, well, well, Cody, I thought, I thought we're supposed to keep morality out of like, like civil law. Like those are two different things. Like your personal morality doesn't matter for civil law. Those are two categories, but I just want to ask you, what law is not inherently moral? Like the very fact of what a law is, is to say that this thing is bad and that thing is good. And so you cannot divide morality from the law of the land. It's impossible. The only question then is whose morality Will the law be based on? Will it be based on what we know is true? Or will it be based on something that's false? Will it be based on something we know is good? God's character, His word? Or will it be based on something else which then by necessity is not good? Which will it be? So we pray that the governing authorities would govern in such a way as even evil Artaxerxes did in Ezra's time, right? Allowing something good to happen, but not just allowing something good to happen, but doing that which is conducive to godly lives. That, that God actually put it in the heart of Artaxerxes to promote the worship of the one true God. 
and that he saw Ezra and he knew this man is devoted to God's word. And he put Ezra in charge. Now listen, I know that we can't legislate people to faith in Christ. And that's, that's, that's why we are praying for all people here. That's why call, Paul calls us to pray for all people that they would actually come to faith. That's a work that God has to do. But we pray for governing authorities in such a way that they would not hinder faithful Christians from living both peaceful and godly lives. That their rule would not only not hinder it, but he actually says it in the positive. Doesn't he? He doesn't just say, uh, uh, pray that, that, he, that they wouldn't stop you from living godly lives. He says, no, pray that they would do things that would produce godly lives, that would promote godly lives. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we want a government that promotes all religions equally? Did Paul want that in Ephesus? Paul wants us to pray that their rule would be conducive to godly lives, not idolatrous ones. Why would we pray that... Why would we pray that the worship of false gods would have equal opportunity as the glorifying of the one true God? Does that read like anything that we would read in Scripture? Why would we pray that people could have equal opportunity to hear false gospels than to hear the true, true gospel that saves? Does that sound loving in any sort of way? And the reason the reason Paul gives is that more godly lives actually produces a better environment for more people to come to faith in Christ. And I think that there's a misconception that it runs, you know, sort of um, sort of common in the church. Uh, perhaps you've heard it, and, and it, and it goes something like, you know, the gospel um, spreads most under persecution. And it's true that the blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the gospel throughout the centuries, but, but this, this uh, misconception is that, no, actually, the gospel spreads most or spreads better under persecution, but what we read from Paul here is something very different. The gospel does not spread best under the persecution of authorities, but under the protection of authorities, is what Paul says. That's what promotes it. Because he doesn't ask, you know, uh, that, that we may have kings that would persecute us so that, you know, we could, the gospel could go out more and more and more people wouldn't come to know Christ. His concern is more and more people coming to know the Lord. And what he prays for is that leaders and, and civil authorities would actually lead in such a way that people could live peaceful and godly lives. But that is what's going to promote more and more people, more and more kinds of people to come to know the Lord. And, it, and, and you know what? When we take a look at history, we can see that it's true. It's amazing what God can do in spreading His good news even under persecution. And we should marvel at that. We should marvel at the ways in which the, the gospel is going forth in places like China and in India, and in places especially in North Africa, where there's severe persecution of Christians, and yet 
the, the gospel continues to go forth and the church continues to grow. But listen, why is the gospel in those countries? Because centuries ago, in other countries, the gospel was protected and it produced an effect wherein they could send missionaries to those countries. Who were the missionaries to India and to China and to Africa in the 1700s, 1800s? People from Scotland, England, Europe, countries that were Christian, that promoted Christianity. And out of that prosperity, the gospel went from there to some of the darkest places. And it took time, but those seeds were planted. And now it's bearing a massive harvest. Friends, Let's pray for those who are in persecution. We should pray for those who are in persecution, brothers and sisters being faithful. And we should also pray that in our own time and in, our, and in every place, that the authorities would allow for peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way, that the gospel could go forth more and more throughout the world. But what about all those opposing godly living in our world? And what about the authorities who dishonor their God-given position by not promoting what's godly? This immorality and dishonor of God may rightly produce frustration and anger in us. And the church ought to be a tool used by God to speak out against these injustices. We cannot stay quiet. That would be to give up what God has called us to do. But let our angry pronouncements be preceded by agonizing prayers. Otherwise, of what effect will all our calls for repentance be? What good is it for us to stand and complain about that person or that person or that person who's in authority and how ungodly they are and the terrible things they are doing if we have not first got on our knees and prayed for them? Do you think that your angry pronouncement is going to produce some sort of effect? Or do you think that God is going to produce that effect? Do you think your angry tweet is going to make the difference? Or do you think your agonizing prayer to God is going to make the difference? Calvin said this about this passage. He said, It is our duty, therefore, not only to pray for those who are already worthy, but we must pray to God that he make bad men good. And when you look in history at some of the civil authorities in our own train, our own, our own stream of, of Western civilization, and you look at some of the men who were in places of civil authority who did the most for God, I promise you what you'll find is men who came into that office, not believers, and God transformed their life. And because they were already there, God was able to use them to do amazing things. Guys like William Wilberforce in England, who year after year, listen, who year after year stood before Parliament, stood up once a year and said, if you allow slavery continue, God will judge you. You are in the position to change this, and the blood of those people are on you. 
Can you believe that? Could you imagine someone standing up in a city council meeting or Congress and saying that? And yet he remained there. And at the end of his life, God did it. God did it. And so we come to the promise of prayer in verses 5 through 7. Because this can feel hopeless, like a hopeless endeavor in a culture that seems to be moving totally in the wrong direction, that, that seems to have a, a rampant wickedness amongst its, its rulers that just seems completely apparent. And we can begin to ask ourselves, why should we trust that these prayers will be effective? And the reason we find in verses 5 through 7, we find that we have much reason to hope. First, because you're praying to the one God. There is only one God. There is no other God before Him. He is sovereign. And there is only one mediator, Jesus. Nothing is outside of God's control. He is above and beyond all things. Nothing is too great, and nothing has gone too far for Him to bring back. If you can bring back people from the grave, then you can turn the hearts of kings in whatever way you want. And yet, even still, his vastness does not make him unreachable because in his son, we have the perfect application of his eminence, his closeness to us through which Jesus has become mediator between us and God. We can come into the throne of grace. We can come to the throne of grace, right? Jesus is interceding for us. So we, we have hope because we pray to the one God. We also have hope because Jesus gave himself as a ransom. Why shouldn't he want to answer our prayers? When we pray for those, all kinds of people who are far from God, that they would know, that they would come to knowledge of, of the truth and that they would be saved, why shouldn't Jesus want to answer those prayers? He is the Jesus that died on the cross, that people would be saved. You aren't praying, friends. Friends, you aren't praying to a stingy God who is looking for some excuse not to answer your prayers for the salvation of people. Look, sometimes my kids come to me and they ask for something and I just really don't want to do it. I just, I'm doing something else. I don't want to take the time. I don't want to take the money. I don't want to take the effort. And I am just looking for a reason to say no. Like looking for a reason to go like, nah, sorry, we can't do that. That is not the God that we serve. That is not our heavenly father with ultimate, like unlimited resource. Time is of no consequence to him. We're praying to a God who gave all to save only rebels. And so this is a call to those who actually have faith that he will do it and respond in prayer. And then last, we have hope because he's appointed us heralds and messengers. So Paul uniquely was appointed a teacher, a herald, the word could be translated a herald of the gospel, someone who would proclaim the gospel and an apostle, a messenger would be the way that you could term that. Paul was an apostle in a narrow sense, right, appointed specifically by Jesus in that time, in that first generation of the church. But that unique task uh, of being a herald and a messenger that was given to him is generally given to the church. 
to us. To the Corinthians, Paul says that we are ministers of reconciliation. We are messengers of this this great news that God reconciles people to himself through Christ's death. When we take up the task of praying and proclaiming that to people. So, as we wrap up, I want to ask the question, how then can we be externally focused? First, we must pray for people. We must pray for people. We, we, we should not assume that any effort to see someone come to faith in Christ is going to have any progress if we have not first prayed. The best way to make your church missional is prayer, not programs. The best way to be externally focused is prayer. I'm confident most Christians today, if they were part of one of these churches in the New Testament, that they would criticize them because they spent too much time together and not enough time being externally focused. You're too internally focused. All this time gathering together, all this time encouraging one another, all this time praying together, you gotta, you gotta be you know, attractive. These people out there, they're not gonna wanna come and pray. No people saved by God might have a different opinion on that. People who are actually brought in to the kingdom. But all that encouragement and prayer fueled something. It didn't just stop there. The second thing we've got to do is we've got to pursue godly lives. The best way to make your church attractive, attractive in a way that actually leads to salvations, is pious lives, not popular techniques. It's pious lives. The saying is true, what you win them with is what you win them to, right? And I want to see people one to an eternal God and Savior, not a passing fad. I want to see people one to lives transformed by the gospel, pious, godly lives that are devoted to our Savior, not lives that are filled with more church activities. I want to see people brought into the loving family of believers, not just into a bunch of programs. And consider what God's Word says in John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you, what? Love one another. By your love for one another, by your love for other Christians, by the way in which you interact with one another, by the, the community that you have together, that is how people are going to know. Acts 2.47, it says, The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And what is it that it just said that they were doing there in Acts 2.42-47? They were devoting themselves to corporate worship, to community and meeting each other's homes and eating together, to loving and caring for other believers in extravagant ways, to living in a display of gratitude and thanksgiving to God. And then people came to know the Lord. It's, a, it's the compelling lives of Christians, the compelling community of the church that is profoundly different than the way that people in the world live. That is what is attractive to people, at least attractive in the sense 
attraction to the gospel. And finally, the third thing we need to do is we need to proclaim the gospel. We've got to proclaim the gospel. We need to proclaim it in the pulpit. We need to proclaim it at our jobs. We need to proclaim it in our homes, to our kids. We need to be speaking the gospel, heralding it, messengers of Christ everywhere we go. Sometimes I think, you know, we're a little, we're a little church here in the middle of Bonner Springs, on the edge of a bigger city. What, what possibly can we do for God's kingdom? What, how possibly can we have any effect, any impact for Christ? And I, and I was reminded recently of a story in 1 Samuel 14, an interesting chapter where, where King Saul is compared to his son, Jonathan. The, the story goes like this. Saul's had some victories against the Philistines, but the Philistines have kind of struck back. And Saul and Jonathan and the army of some 3,000 men uh, are surrounded by the Philistines and they're hiding in caves and they're hiding under rocks. They don't know what to do. And, and the passage even says that the priest was there with them. So, so Saul could have, the implication is Saul could have gone to the priest who had the ephod, it said, who had the, the, the little umamun thermum, if you know what that is, and you know, he could have uh, cast lots and he could, could have said, okay, seek God, priest, and ask him, will you give us favor? Will you give us victory against these Philistines? Saul could have done that, but he did not. Instead, he hid because he was scared. It says that Jonathan did something different. Jonathan didn't have command of the army like his dad did. He couldn't, he couldn't make the call. He couldn't launch an attack. But Jonathan was in charge of himself. And it says that John, Jonathan turns to his armor bearer and he says this, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan realized that whether it was just two people, him and his armor bearer, or whether it was the whole 2,000 men of the army, that God, if he wanted to win, was going to win either way. And so Jonathan got up out of his hole. He snuck over to the Philistines. And him and his armor bearer, Killed 20 men in a very small space, very quickly. And then you know what happened? Saul goes, oh, hey, looks like something's going on over there. And the Philistines became scared, and they started to scatter. And then Saul got up out of his hole. He said, come on, let's go. And they routed the Philistine army. And the point is, and that wouldn't have any, it didn't have anything to do with Saul. It didn't have anything to do with his strength. It didn't have anything to do with his army. It had everything to do with the Lord God. Guys, I don't want to be a Saul. I want to be a Jonathan. Men, do you want to be a Saul? Or do you want to be a Jonathan? Do you want to hide in a hole? Worried about what someone might think? Worried about what your neighbor will say, or what your coworker will say, or what will happen to your job, or what will happen in your family? Do you want to be a Saul, or do you want to be a Jonathan? 
Do you want to say, look, it may be that the Lord will work for us. And nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, either by many or by few. So let's do this. I don't want, to be, I don't want proclaim to be satisfied with what just merely gives an appearance of success, but for what actually promotes and advances God's kingdom. I want the kingdom to take ground in our city, and we got to get up out of our holes and trust God. Let's pray.